Hello, my name is Sandy Fires, and you're listening to the full interview edition of The Road to Open Science, a podcast brought to you by the Utrecht Young Academy. In a moment, you will hear me talking with Daniel Lakens, experimental psychologist and the author of the weblog The 20% Statistician. A shorter version of this interview was aired in the second episode of The Road to Open Science called Collaboration is Key. So my name is Daniel Lagens. I'm working as an assistant professor at Eindhoven University of Technology, where my research is more in line of cognitive psychology most of the time, but I also spend a considerable amount of time and more and more actually working on topics that relate to methods, statistics, and uh, how to do good science. So I, on your website, I read that you advocate for open science. Uh, do you see yourself as an open science advocate? Um, yeah, I think so. I would say that I'm uh, pretty much convinced that this is the way forward. And I also try to work a little bit a little bit towards it. So not just wait passively until it happens, but I also try to contribute to make it uh, work. So there are some definitions of open science. What's I want to know what's your definition of open science? Um, I think that for a scientist, so you can have it very broad, but uh, for me, maybe the main things that I want to focus on are things like open data and open materials. I think that's very important as somebody who does research. So I want all the materials and all the data underlying scientific papers to be open. Of course, the papers themselves should be openly accessible, for example, through preprints. And um, I think it's important. I would like to see more open review. So basically everything that goes into the publishing is accessible to anybody. You can take a look at everything that's been done. I also care a little bit about other things that are sometimes also shared under open science, like open education materials. But I think mainly as a scientist, I care about the open data materials and review and and the publication. So from the people who work on open data, I, I hear that making data open and accessible is actually a lot more work than making data shareable among a small group of scientists who produce a paper uh, and are ready to provide the data, but to make it in a way that it's reusable and uh, uh, accessible to the whole world, it's a lot of work. You agree? I think that I agree. Um, especially the startup cost is pretty high because if you've never done anything, you have to figure out what to do. So there's a lot of cost involved in figuring out how to work with certain systems. For example, the first time that you use something like GitHub, for example, which we now regularly use in my lab, yeah, it takes a lot of time and a little bit of frustration every now and then to get started. But when you get into the habit, then after that, and you have a good system that works, it becomes not so much more work, especially because you actually also save time later on in the cycle. For example, if you recreate figures and everything is reproducible or if you have to redo analysis or those kind of things. So having a completely sort of open system um, is actually a little bit more work, but it's, I would say, manageable. I don't feel too bad about it most of the time. So you see mostly the barrier in starting to share data. Uh, Do you see this as a burden or a barrier for for scientists? Um, yes, I think so, because we're all very busy. So it's fair. I mean, you, you can only spend your time on one specific thing. So you do really have to say, well, this is important enough 
to do this. And um, I think, I mean, my main, main motivation is that I think that if everybody does this, then everybody benefits in the end. So I already sometimes use data from other people. Uh, for example, because I write a lot about statistics, it's great for me if I can go into an article and actually grab the raw data and then use it as an example for another paper that I'm writing about statistics. So I love it if other people made their data openly available because it allows me to do things. Um, and I think that if we do a good job, yeah, people should be able to reuse uh, also things like materials. And if we share those more and more, yeah, then I think there will be a big payback in terms of time and effort spent on other things, uh, code and materials and those kind of things you can reuse from other people. Uh, but who, who should drag the burden of this initial big step? I think people who are really motivated to do this, right? And they, they have a little bit of time to do it. Um, one of the things that's needed is a little bit of standardization, for example. Like, how do my data look like and how do I name things? And um, you know, there are a couple of ways that you could go about this or which kind of platforms will I use and what should it look like? And it's always easier to copy everybody, uh, um, everything someone else did. Right? So if someone else already figured out how it should look and how you should name things and which platforms you use, then you don't have to spend the time figuring that out. So in the beginning, people are most motivated for this, will make this extra effort, figuring out how to do things, and then other people can follow more easily. I think we're already in the time, by the way, that people can follow more easily because a lot of the groundwork has already been done. But some people say that you know it has been already quite some time talking about open access, but or open data, but we are sort of hitting a wall because it is not institutionalized. Do you agree? I agree. If you want to have widespread implementation of this, the, you can wait for two things to happen. Either we spontaneously think, oh yes, we're all going to do this, um, or you can have a rule, right? You can have some sort of mandate that requires people to do this. Um, so I recently got an NWO grant and actually, I now have to sign that I have a data management plan and that I share everything. So this is already starting to become sort of a rule that I have to follow. And I think that's actually good. I often compare this to light bulbs. We also had a lot of light bulbs and we were hoping that everybody would see, oh, I have to stop buying these and buy energy efficient light bulbs. And it doesn't happen spontaneously. And then the European Union says, okay, it's been nice. Now we have to implement this rule because we believe it's good for everybody if we do this, but it's not going to happen spontaneously. And I think this is a similar situation. Very understandable. People will wait, maybe not have time, but I think it's good that, for example, NWO requires me to share the data of a fund uh, of, of money that the, the public has given me. Yeah, I think that's only fair. And I know that University of Eindhoven has a code of conduct, right? It's how, how did it actually, how was it formed? Well, I'm not, I wasn't involved in forming this. I know that we have it. It's actually a very good one, I have to say. Uh, and I know, for example, one of my colleagues uh, on the other side of the corridor from the philosophy department, uh, Anthony Meyer, was strongly involved in thinking about what this code should look like. It's strongly um, inspired by the code of conduct by the uh, Association of Dutch National Universities. So it's not completely different, but it's a little bit more detailed. And um, yeah, I don't really know how it came about, but uh, uh, they did a pretty good job in saying, for example, that you should always share your data. It's part of the ethical code of conduct. So we now have to do this if somebody asks. How is it enforced? It's, I don't think anybody has violated it 
so that it needs to be enforced so far. So uh, the moment might come that somebody says, well, I want your data, and somebody at the university says, no, I don't think that you should get my data for some some reason. But I have not heard any stories about this happening yet. So, so we'll see. Uh, but it's not enforced, but everybody signs it, even the students, uh, which I think is very good. First year, they already read through it, and they have to sign it. And then when they start their master's uh, or their master thesis, their bachelor thesis even, I think, they sign it like three times. And everybody who starts to work at the university also signs it. So at least there's awareness that this is a norm. And I think that's pretty good. I think that's where it starts. If the norm sort of says, well, we expect this is to be normal behavior, then people shouldn't feel that this is something extra. Then they should feel that this is more or less how science is supposed to be. That's uh, clear. Uh, so also in, in the discussion of open data, the asymmetry comes into play and the free riders and i not always mean the free riders you just said you know i use uh, data from others so it's to my benefit but how about the free riders who never share and sometimes these are just uh, let's do it step by step so how about the academics who don't share and by not taking the extra burden try to take uh, advantage of the people who do share so what should happen with that? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that we're sort of in a transition period. I think it's fine to wait for, you know, a couple of years now. So now we slowly put a, a next step, which is actually... So before it was sort of nice if you shared it, but it was sort of a surprise and journals didn't really know what to do. And now this is working pretty well. People are sharing data. It is working. People are sometimes looking at data that's shared with an article and sometimes point out problems. So journals are starting to see that this is valuable that this data is available for reviewers or people who read the article. And now some journals, at least in psychology, are moving to this default idea that you share the data um, unless you cannot do it. So that there's a sort of default idea that, well, unless you have a good reason not to, we expect that by default the data is shared. And this is already a big step, a big transition, and it will mean that people will start to share their data more and more. And that, indeed, some people might come up with an excuse. But the nice thing is they have to write down what their reason is for not sharing. And basically anything goes. You can say, well, I'm just too lazy. I don't want to do it. I'm too busy. Uh, but it will be written down somewhere. And I think that's already good. Because then we have a transparent sort of overview of what people are doing. And, um, yeah, maybe at a certain moment we'll say, well, this is just no longer acceptable or something. You know, you don't really have a good reason. You have to do something. Otherwise, yeah, maybe the next step is they won't accept the paper anymore or something. You know, somebody. I'm not sure what the consequences should be, but I hope that... Uh, I always think people are well-intended, right? I mean, they want to do the right thing. Most scientists probably want to do the right thing. So uh, I'm not too worried until it becomes a problem. I'm always more optimistic. I want to see like, oh, people are already doing it sort of spontaneously. How nice, right? I don't want to focus too much on the few people who might cause some problems here. Uh, but there is also this other side of discussion. There are also big tech giants who also mine data and they don't follow the same code of conduct. They even don't have to publish their work. And by asymmetrically all the data from universities freely being mm. sort of fed to the tech giants, uh, they can get an upper hand. And you can also think of the places that they just commercialize it without giving back their fair share. But you can also think of the cases uh, of people who would like, for example, with climate science, 
data is shared and uh, there is this and that company who want to prove climate science is not climate science is bogus or climate change is not happening they find a little you know mistake somewhere and then make a big fuss of it while their own research or their own uh, sort of products are not kept to the same standard so don't you see this as a worry I think this is a challenge, right? Uh, both of these things. So first, that people might do something negative with data. And it could be anything. It could be about political attitudes or whatever you happen to study that somebody says, oh, well, now we have this data, look, and that they use it in a bad way. I think here also, um, very often, secrecy is not a closed science, right? The, op the, the opposite of, I would say, I would just say science, right? I think we should move not to open science. We should say there's science and there's closed science. But I think closed science is not a really good solution because it feels like you have something to hide. I mean, you should sort of hope that there's enough transparency and enough motivated people to correct these things if this happens. But that will be more work, right? So there will be situations where somebody will have to spend a lot of time defending against somebody who now has access to data. And I think we have to see how this goes. Maybe it requires some additional money sometimes that somebody, you know, who, who is sort of in these sort of debates that we say, well, this is too bad. You need some extra resources or help. Maybe it will... Uh, happen spontaneously that a lot of people will help somebody to you know deal with some issues um, but I, i'm not sure how it will work out uh, i don't think there there are some examples of cases where people wanted access to data but i think they were always right to ask for it so far uh, and i've not seen very good cases where somebody does something horrible with data and then gets away with it or convinces everybody it could happen so it's a good risk to keep in mind uh, but i think Hopefully that we'll be able to deal with it. The other issue you mentioned is, I think, more important that um, companies get a lot of free stuff from academia or from society. And I think it's quite uh, unbalanced, as you mentioned. I think this is surprising. So these big companies, they get highly educated people, which we train for them. And uh, yeah, some of these bigger tech companies get away with paying very little tax and also contributing not too much in other ways to society, um, which is very weird. I find that very weird. So I think, um, yeah, it would be nice if there's more return. And I think that uh, some of these companies should have a bigger investment in science because they benefit almost disproportionately from what the work that we do. Uh, even if you just look at educating young people, highly educated people who can work for these companies is a great investment of society and it's very useful for these companies. Yeah, maybe we should get a bit more back from it. And then the same comes from data sometimes. It would be good. Yeah. So do, you, do you see a general way that scientists or the academic community has a means in their hand that they can enforce that or request that higher return? Mm, maybe, maybe, because we have a lot of skills. I think that's really true. I mean, we know a lot of stuff. Uh, we're pretty smart about certain things. And companies are also doing a good job. But I think, I still think that academia has a little bit of an upper hand because we just have more people who are, you know, really diving into things and, and know a bit more. So, so I think we really have a kind of valuable knowledge and yeah, we have to sort of think what we're going to give away for free and not. But there are licenses that, for example, would allow you to share things for non-commercial reasons. And this is always a bit of a topic in, uh, in open science. Should you give it away with a license that anybody can do anything for it? Or should we have licenses that are not commercial? 
And sometimes I tempted to do things and give them a license that's not, not commercial. For example, my educational material is all available uh, for free, basically, but it is available for, with a non-commercial license. And then some people say, but now I'm not sure if we can put it on Wikipedia or not. And then I say, yeah, might be, but I'm still alive. You know, you can just ask me and uh, uh, when I die, we'll see. Yeah, and now let's connect to the topic of reproducibility. So do you think that's open data and open science will help in your field, psychology, but in general science to sort of get over this crisis of reproducibility that we sort of faced a couple of years ago? Yes, I think so. I think so. I mean, of course, it depends on what people are going to share, but if they really share their data and all their data, um, then I think this is very useful. We already see now papers where people reanalyze data and point out flaws. Now, that's good because, of course, these mistakes wouldn't reproduce. I mean, uh, or the findings they're based on wouldn't reproduce. So that's one immediate thing. You have higher quality control. And I think that's good. We need a little bit higher quality control. Sometimes when you need it, you should be able to go into the data and take a look. So that's one thing. But personally, I already recognize that when I uh, work on data and uh, now all my data is shared, and now I have these very nice, much better ways of working and processing data than I did before. So I'm just forced by the fact that I know that anybody can go into my data and take a look at it. I feel that I do a better job making sure everything's right. And I'll still make mistakes because we all make mistakes. Before I made copy-paste mistakes, now I make programming mistakes when I write a paper in R Markdown and it still happens. But at least these mistakes are more transparent. People can go in and see them and it's already happened that somebody actually pointed out a mistake in a paper that I wrote. It was a minor, minor mistake, a number that was just not completely uh, accurate but you know didn't matter a lot. Um, and I think that's great. I think that's perfect that people can so easily do that. Can this go uh, a bit too much to the extreme? Uh, I don't have personal experience with that, but I hear from my colleagues or there were also discussions of these people who are, let's say, you know, replication barriers or data talks, uh, mm. the different terms are used for them. And so sometimes they think that actually this sort of moots extra pressure I understand reproduction of the results is very useful, but in the area which there are limited resources, would this extra pressure sometimes backfire? Mm -hmm. I think that is something to consider, right? You don't want this. So I'm always a bit worried about uh, the pendulum swinging too far in the opposite direction. I think that's a real worry. Uh, and I think it's difficult to completely prevent. It always happens a little bit. People overreact. Um, but in general, there's quite a lot of room for the pendulum to move in the right direction. I mean, there's really, really some stuff we can do better. Um, I'm not somebody who says we have to go all the way immediately. I mean, I, I work uh, a lot in statistics and I have this blog. It's called the 20% statistician, which is based on the Pareto principle. I'm already happy if people do 20% of the stuff that will probably get us 80% of the gain. And I don't see too many problems so far with um, people really being overburdened or having some sort of problems. I really, if you ask people who do this, they see a lot of benefits for their own work. You know, just more certainty in what you're doing. You're sort of more confident in your own results, um, which is also something you shouldn't ignore. I mean, I used to be pretty stressed very often if I have to reanalyze my data after a couple of months. And now this is completely gone because I just know everything is nicely organized and perfect there, right? I mean, so there are also these kind of benefits. Personally, I don't think it's uh, 
all negative. Uh, but I do see people who are worried, but I think they're very often worried for things that it's not very clear what they're worried about. It's more a sort of general worry. Um, but I've, as of yet, not seen major major issues uh some sometimes maybe some some problems that people disagree on something um so there are really fierce discussions sometimes between certain people um but i'm always more for the silent majority who's just doing their work and probably doing their work a little bit better than a couple of years ago so that's actually on the other side also <coughs> this nervousness or this stress that you mentioned is for some people a perceived barrier to engage more sort of uh, openly or more fiercely into open science. Uh, so you see this is just for the first step. That's what I understand from your words. What would be the first, real first action you will uh, advise these people that uh, you think they will take and you know their stress at least becomes less or they just take the first step? Mm -hmm. Well, um, one of the first things we did in our own department, for example, is uh, not have open science, but we had well-organized internal science. So, for example, we had a system where everybody shared their data. When it was collected, it was uploaded in a central server uh, just as a backup and everything was there. So we would never lose materials or data. Everything was organized, especially from student projects. That's actually a very good idea because you lose things after a couple of years. And uh, so now everything is there. It's a very nice organized workflow. I, I would start there. Uh, and then nobody else is going to look at that data yet. But you are slowly getting used to a system where everything is nicely structured. And then try that for a couple of years. And then I think you'll see that, well, maybe you'll collaborate with somebody who's really sharing their data. And you sort of recognize, well, this is basically exactly what we're doing. But now other people can also access it. Good. You check it another time just to make sure. And, and then I think the step becomes much smaller. But I would start internally because just having organized, good st structured data is just a good, uh, good habit to have. So I'm um, now connecting to that. If you want to have, if you want to see open science being practiced on a larger scale, are you on the side that we still need to rely on the, you know, uh, what they, what's called uh, the early adopters being more active, or you think it's the time to we need that we need. In, you think it's a time that we need more uh, top-down uh, measures being taken and policies being adopted centrally? Yeah, there's, so there's always a bit of it. It's an interesting trade-off where, uh, indeed, people who make the general decisions, the top-down decisions, want there to be some bottom-up initiative. They don't want to tell people what to do, but they want to see best practices, right? That's typically what they say. Like, show us the best practices, and then we'll see what of these we will implement. I think we're, like, for many things, we're already at this stage that... Uh, the best practices are pretty clear. A lot of the discussions has been have been had. There's also a time where you really have to start doing it on a larger scale to figure out the smaller problems. And there will be some issues with certain fields where people say, well, I don't really know how to do this. But on the other hand, there is a lot of work. I mean, I was visiting CERN a couple of weeks ago where I know that they have these huge systems in place. They have so much data, right? They have a, a they have to decide what to keep like after seconds, because otherwise they cannot store everything. But they have a, a very nice system in place for all of this. And it's a very complex, challenging environment. Now, if I'm a psychologist, I should be able to do everything as well, right? So it sh shouldn't be so challenging. Um, so I would say that uh, a lot of this is being done. And especially if I look at younger people, 
uh, and I teach a lot of younger younger researchers, PhD students. Yeah, it feels pretty natural to do certain things. This is not uh, something that you wouldn't think scientists would be doing. So, and they are more than happy to just join along, and and do these things and implement these practices. So I think yes, we can. Like NWO is now requiring data sharing plans. That's perfectly fine. Like these journals that are now saying, well, we expect by default that you share your data. That makes sense, uh, which is quick, because three years ago. Uh, this was a sort of wild idea. I think it was uh, really something you wouldn't see, but you see how quickly the change is happening. And and that's maybe the last reason why people should start to work on this. Because what if you want to publish in a very nice journal that in a year starts to implement these practices? You probably want to be prepared now. That's basically my advice. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of these open science programs which are made uh, nationally or internally, they do have a section on incentives and uh, they say a lot of reasons that these things are not happening and there is resistance is that the incentives are not aligned mm. first of all do you agree with this point of view yes i agree with this yeah of course because the individual incentives incentives are not uh, for me to share everything that i'm doing for two reasons first what what am i getting out of it and um, well, maybe sometimes I can use materials here and there, that's nice. But the potential risks, even if it's like one in a thousand or one in a hundred thousand who publish a paper and then somebody spots an error that's so critical that you have to retract the paper, this has happened. And, and just this risk is so big that you probably, if you just think about your yourself, your own um, uh, benefits, uh, you probably would say, hmm, maybe not. But it's, of course, a very bad reason to choose not to do something, right? As a scientist, you shouldn't be driven too much by it. But if you completely leave it up to individual incentives, then it costs a little bit of time. There's a high risk that somebody will find a mistake, or I'll share data that I could use myself, but somebody else does more with it. So so I think it's an issue. And But all these things are almost immediately in the collective benefit. So it's very good if we spot errors in the work of other people. Um, and I want other people to spot errors in the work, not of myself, but of other people. So I know not to build on it or not use it or so those kind of things, right? So uh, so there is a mismatch and you're not going to get around it. And uh, you mentioned a couple of times the funders. Do you think that the simulations which are already out there enough or do you want to see more? And if yes, in what directions? I think they're in the Netherlands. They're trying pretty well. I think I think they're ahead of the curve in many ways, which is actually very nice to see. Um, and they're they're doing a lot of things to try to move incentives around. I think they're moving um, moving in the right direction, uh, pretty proactively, but not too quickly. So I think it's actually pretty good, pretty good what they're doing. I mean, uh, their push for open access is pretty nice. Uh, their push for for data sharing requiring that. I would add material sharing, uh, but okay. Uh, no, I think they're they're doing it pretty well. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the main order is done, but I have uh, uh, some additional questions. So you have a two or five minute rule to share your data. Does it ring a bell? A two to five minute rule. Sorry. Huh? So 
uh, Bianca told me that you have a two or five minute rule for being able to share your data. <laughs> Can you tell about it? Oh, all right. Now, now I know. Yeah, this is something that uh, I think it it's impressive if you can send your, your data within, well, let's say, two to five minutes, right? Which means that whenever you ask me for something that I've been working on, that my data is so organized that I know which folder to go to, and I know that the data is also already nicely organized and I can just share it. Yeah, so that's, that's sort of the rule, that you can check with yourself if somebody would ask for my data, could I share it in five minutes or less and I think that's a nice uh, I don't think you have to do it in practice but but ask yourself this question that's mainly why I, I, I talk about this rule so ask yourself this question if you can do it and if you can't for a project of maybe two years ago then I think you might want to update your uh, data management uh, practices a little bit uh, another question is that you have decided to make a mm, so let's see is peer review? Uh, or not? Yeah, um, peer review comes later. Oh. I want to just choose the order, but mm. we can also no, go no, to no. it. Uh, yeah, so we talk about reproducibility crisis, mm. and uh, you have decided to, to make a MOOC mm. because you think it helps, mm. right? Yes. Is that, well, maybe in your own language, why did you decide to make a MOOC? Mm. So I, I have this course, this massive open access, uh, oh no, massive open online course. Uh, so people can just for free go and follow training on statistical inferences, but it also has a last week on open science where, where they really go through pre-registration of their work. They upload the pre-registration, they share the data and everything they used in the final report. So. Um, so why did I make this? I think a lot of people, this is new, so we have to educate people how to do this. And I see that it is pretty active in some places, but not in others. And who's going to teach it if nobody is around to teach you this? So you have to have some resources for this. And nowadays we have these technological developments and the internet is amazing. And it, I know it sounds like it's you know been here forever, but that's not true. Like social media are maybe 12 years that are really widely used, which is not too long in science terms. So we have these resources now. And well, personally, I, I teach a lot. I like to teach. And I was getting too much requests to talk about this stuff. And then I thought, well, I'll record it, put it online, and uh, yeah, people go there and hopefully learn about how to do this. What's also nice, by the way, uh, is that this is sometimes, so there's a part where um, you can watch videos and they're subtitled. And um, a nice thing of making everything open and free is that there's actually been a big Chinese team that have translated all the subtitles into Chinese. Now people are working on Spanish. And these are large groups of people that don't have access to this information. But I think it's hugely important that we also reach these people. So yeah, I'm, I'm very happy with these kind of things. Yeah. So it's not long ago that people were talking very... Uh, 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 people were talking about... Uh, uh, reproducibility crisis in psychology and uh, you are an optimist you describe yourself as an optimist is the crisis over yes i think it's over honestly i think it's over because um it's not over in the sense that everybody has in implemented everything but i think on a higher level there's now so much awareness of these issues many journals are moving in the right direction i think we'll see that work comes out where people are more able to distinguish between the better work and the not so good work and that will have consequences down the line in terms of what's being cited and so i think the machinery now is set up that we are pretty much moving in the right direction. I mean, it's not perfect, and I know pessimists will say, no, you're too optimistic, but I think really that that's 
pretty much, we figured out a lot of the stuff. Well, this is again the 2080 Pareto principle. I think we definitely have the 20% of stuff that gets us 80% of the way. You can always complain about the remaining part, but I would say that, yeah, it's pretty much over. Although, of course, seeing the fruits will take a couple of years. I think that's something we will hear more about it uh, in the in the Studium General talk you're going to give. Uh, so I have two more questions. I will ask first the general one. So uh, what do you think is the most important thing that university as an entity can do to stimulate open science? I think the most important thing they can do is stimulate researchers to collaborate. I really think that's the most important thing because what we talked about, these incentives, for example, these are all individual incentives. So the stronger you focus on individuals in your organization, the more people will feel these kind of pressures. The more that you make sure that people can collaborate and that they work together on things and they, that makes it much easier to share. So I think that's really one of the most important things that universities can stimulate. And it's also tricky, but it's needed. For example, I know situations where people decided to work together, which is very good, but then there was this moment where they had to, um, their PhD students that were, were involved in the project had to write up the results. And then the people involved in the project got sort of into a fight. Well, not a fight, but a disagreement. Like we all need first author papers. Our PhD students need first author papers. And that was not possible. So they broke up, they broke up the collaboration and they wrote their small papers exactly not what you want. So we have to think very long and hard about how we can foster collaboration. And I think that will be a, a good task for universities to think about. But why is the pendulum gone so far on the individual side? Um, yeah, why, why are we so individual? I think this is, I mean, from, from years and years ago, I mean, really like 400 years ago, right? When we started to do science, one of the main motivations was individual prestige. Um, and this was in a time where you didn't get paid for science. So, and, and you could have uh, like uh, Darwin or something can have something named after uh, himself. So you have individual prestige as a good motivator. Now, that might still be useful nowadays, but now we actually have nice jobs. And I think that Maybe, but I'm not sure, but I have the feeling that there's a young generation of scientists who feel a bit more that collaboration is pretty nice, but also are less strongly motivated by individual prestige than before. And uh, I think this is a good thing. So so this used to be a very strong sort of motivation for, for individuals to work in science, and it's good, it can work. But if it goes too far, because you reward only individual performance, and somebody's the first and the the second person to figure out the same thing gets nothing. Uh, well, then you get a lot of these problems, like nobody's going to replicate the work of someone else, for example, which is just undesirable. Um, and also not fair, because the second person who does something is still uh, giving a, you know, making a big contribution. So I think that it went a little bit too far in, in the reward structure individually. And I think that there's a large group of people that actually doesn't necessarily think this is needed anymore that we can be motivated to work together and do something useful for society but that may be the most optimistic thing that i say but i, I really think yes that's possible so but you don't see the sociology of the academic community as a star system um i think that that is part of the community and maybe that's also fine by the way i don't want to say that how come 
Well, I don't think that it's uh, not good that there are some individuals who just don't want to collaborate, do their own thing and make it big time. And they might be people who make good contributions. I'm not sure. I think science has to be very diverse. I don't want to have like a monoculture. I don't want one way to do it. Uh, but I just think that there's not a lot of room, like I said, of people who want to work together and then they're they have to write first author papers. So there's not enough room for the other side. I'm not saying we shouldn't have uh, people who just want to become famous and make a huge big contribution and name it after themselves, go for it. Uh, but let's also make a bit more room for people who want to collaborate more. And you see universities as the center that can encourage this? I think so. I think so. I think they have the room to think about these things uh, in terms of their hiring practices, for example, right? That's what universities can think about. And it's a, a main worry for many young people. So so being uh, very, uh, that's really, there's a lot of room to be um, be uh, sort of uh, innovative there and, and making a bold claim as a university that you say, well, we also make room for this kind of profile, for example, in our university. That would be pretty daring to do. And I'm not exactly sure how it should look like, but I think it should be possible. Okay. And I think this is the last question. Again, come from Bianca. Uh, so this is a very specialized question. Mm. So the question is, is there a difference between fields in how reproducibility and reproducibility replicability are interpreted and does that have implications uh, for the discourse on reproducibility and replication crisis? Hmm. I think there was a bit of a confusion maybe in the beginning. For example, we wrote this paper in 2015, which ended up in science where we replicated um, 100 studies in psychology and it's called the reproducibility project, but actually we should have called it the replicability project. We now realize this. Um, no, I think that some fields rely more on reproducibility. So really just having the data and making sure that you can do, you know, reach the same conclusion from the same data. Um, and for some fields that will be more more important. You can think about computational sciences, for example, or, or even uh, fields where the data analysis is extremely complex, um, which might already be the case with physiology, for example. Um, and in psychology, I think people are more interested in replicability. So, so what's most interesting for a field or most important for a field might be slightly different. Um, uh, so there might be some differences in where the, the weight lies between these things. But very often both of them are important and, and we try to write papers that are completely reproducible. So you can just click a button and, and uh, generate the, the paper from the raw data that we're writing. We're trying to do this now, which is uh, um, also very important. Yeah. Okay. I think that's uh, the end of my list of questions. So do you, have a, you, know, do you see uh, a time scale until which what we call now open science becomes really the mainstream science? Mm -hmm. I think that's a, an interesting question because things are really moving very quickly, to be honest. For example, we had a couple of years ago, maybe 2014, end of 2014 maybe, we wrote this paper uh, about an initiative that's called the Peer Reviewers Openness Initiative, uh, spearheaded by Richard Morey in Cardiff. And the idea is that as a reviewer, you prioritize reviews where people say that they will share the data and the materials because we thought, well, we think this is important. We can choose how to spend our time. And this was then seen as very provocative that as a scientist, you would choose what to review based on whether it had adhered to open science principles, even though we said, you can give any reason why you don't share. That's fine. You don't have to share it. You can also say, I don't want to share it 
because I think your initiative is stupid and we would still review it as long as there was any justification. And this was 2014. We had wild discussions that this was a crazy idea. And basically now many journals are implementing this like three years later. Uh, so that's going so quickly that I'm, I find it very difficult to, to predict the future and how quickly it goes. I think many of these things feel very intuitive for younger researchers, which is important. They're more computer savvy, so they're not so scared of things, you know, software or the things that you can use. So I would say it's going to be pretty like 2025. I think we are very, very far with these things. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Daniel Lakens. You've been listening to the full interview edition of The Road to Open Science, a podcast from the Utrecht Young Academy. Our guest was Daniel Lakens, Assistant Professor in Applied Cognitive Psychology at Eindhoven University. Parts of this interview were used for our second episode called Collaboration is Key. We had three other guests on that episode, Kirsty Wittecker from the Allen Turing Institute and Anita Erlands and Luke Brinkman from the Open Science Community at Utrecht University. You might want to check it out. The discussion about this podcast and the show notes are hosted on the portal of Open Science Community Utrecht, www.openscience-utrecht.com. And there are more episodes coming soon, so subscribe in your favorite podcast app to get notified, or follow us on Twitter at r2ospodcast with a numeric 2. If you like, you can also recommend this podcast to your colleagues and friends or anyone you know who is interested in discussion around open science. Thanks go to Levin Hermans and Marisa Moll for helping bring the podcast together and Andy Clark who helps us with the production. And from me, San Lee Fies, thanks for listening and talk to you soon. Bye.